chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Acts 9, 32 to 43. Last couple of weeks we've been looking at the conversion of Saul and then his early ministry. And now we're switching back to Peter. And we pick up the story in 9.32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, disciples hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for this passage of Scripture that shows us the power of the risen Jesus Christ. Father, would You open our eyes this morning to see that Jesus Christ is not only alive and well, but that He is active and that He is intervening in the lives of His people. Father, I pray that You will renew our hope this morning. We all come here with various situations, but no matter how hopeless it may appear, it is never hopeless before You. All things are possible with You, and all things are possible for those who believe. So we ask You to help us to believe in a great and mighty God. Amen. You may be seated. Over the years, I've been amused by the different responses to messages that I've given, that I've received. Uh, I can remember many years ago, a gentleman just started attending our church and he came up to me and he said, oh, pastor, that, that message was just for me. And then the next week, I, I saw him after the service, he said, oh, pastor, that message was just for me. And then the third week, and then the fourth week, he said again, oh, pastor, that message was just for me. Every single week, you have a, a message for me. And then the fifth week, he came up to me and he said, Oh, Pastor, the Lord finally gave me a break. He said, this week the message was for my wife. <laughs> uh, I remember another occasion I gave a message on something like financial responsibility. I'm not sure what it was. And 
a gentleman came up to me after the service and he said, Pastor, you are so right. I need to love my wife more. And I remember saying, I didn't say anything about marriage. I didn't say anything about love. I didn't have an illustration. Uh, but I've just learned over the years just to roll with it and say, that's great that God is speaking to you. <laughs> Uh, one of the reasons why people respond differently to messages is because of the unique role of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit works in amazing ways, and sometimes I just smile at how God works. There's another reason why people have diverse responses to a sermon, and that's because everybody hears God's Word with a different heart. Jesus made this plain in the parable of the sower, Better known, I think, is the parable of the soils. One example of this is found in Mark. Uh, turn to Mark 4 if you have your Bibles. In Mark 4, beginning in verse 3, Jesus said to His disciples, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And then a little later, Jesus uh, told the disciples what the parable meant because they had no idea. And He said that the hard ground um, is a hard heart, basically. And the devil comes and he steals the Word of God so that it has no effect. Uh, the shallow soil is like a shallow heart. Immediately it receives the Word with joy. But because it's shallow, as soon as trouble comes or persecution comes, they don't endure, and they drift away. And then there's the heart that is choked by thorns that represent the cares of this world, uh, the deceitfulness of riches or the desires for other things. So the Word comes, but it has no effect uh, because the things of this world choke it out. But then there's good soil, uh, a good heart. They hear the Word of God, and it takes roots, and it grows up, and it yields a crop. Sixty thirty, a hundredfold. And Jesus was telling His disciples, the Word's going to go forth and there's going to be all these different types of responses because there's all these different types of hearts out there. Therefore, there will be different responses to God's Word. So there are various responses to God's Word, which we can explain by the role of the Holy Spirit, the condition of the heart. And there's a third reason that we could describe as the level of our faith. We respond to the Word of God based on the level of our faith. Some of us have greater faith. Some of us have lesser faith. And this makes a difference in how we respond to God's Word. It makes a difference in how we respond to the promises of God. Have you ever wondered why the same promise can be such an encouragement to one person? They say, oh, thank you for that promise, Lord. That lifts me up. That gives me encouragement. While another Christian hears a promise of God and there's almost like no effect whatsoever. What's, what's the difference? It's the faith that they have. Now, I could give you many examples. Let me just give you two quick examples. The first one's 
found in Genesis 18. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. This is the Lord speaking with Abraham. And we read in Genesis 18.10, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Oh, isn't that a great promise? Directly from the mouth of God. Your wife, Sarah, is going to have a son, and she will give birth within a year. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, she was well beyond the age of giving birth to children. I won't give an example from this congregation. So Sarah said, that's wonderful. Yes, what I've been waiting for my whole life. This is great, right? No. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? She laughed. <laughs> she, thought, she thought it was a joke. She couldn't accept the promise of God. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Why did Sarah laugh? Because her faith was way down here and she just believed that it wasn't possible for her to have a child. Numbers 13. One, one more example. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 13 is the Israelites in the wilderness. God is preparing to give them the promised land. And He's getting ready to send spies into the land. Now, notice what we read in Numbers 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Now stop right there. He's not saying which I might give to them, um, which I hope to give to them. No, which I am giving them. Again, it's a promise. Go spy out the land of Canaan, the promised land, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So, from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one, a chief among them. And you'll recall the story that they spent one, sent one spy from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And when the twelve tribes went throughout the land, they saw that it indeed was a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, it was a very blessed land, but the people there were huge. They were like giants. And when they came back, Ten of the spies said, yes, it's flowing with milk and honey, but there's no way that we can take the land because the people there are too great, too mighty. They'll destroy us. But two other spies, Caleb and Joshua, said, we can do it, for the Lord is with us. Now, notice the same promise was given to all the spies. I am giving you the land. So how was it that ten spies heard that promise but said, no way, never happened, can't do it? Well, two spies said, great, we have the promise of God. He's with us. Let's go. 
Why, why the different responses? Different levels of faith. That's why. Ten spies saw the obstacles which negated the promise, while two spies saw the promise which negated the obstacles. The question we have to ask is, what do you see? Do you see the great, bold, trustworthy promises of God before you? Or do you just see obstacles? Huge obstacles. Hurdles that even the greatest Olympic athletes couldn't get over. What do you see in front of you? As you head forth throughout your... What's in front of you? Do you have a God who's going before you? Who has promised you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. You have a God who goes before you who says, I will meet all your needs according to your glorious riches in Christ. Do you have that God going before you promising those things? Or do you just see big obstacles, troubles? Oh, no. I'll never be able to overcome that. But what do you have? Where, where is your faith? We have a God who cares about us. God has made great promises. And to believe those promises, we have to understand at least two things. We have to understand that when God gives a promise, He is able to fulfill it and He is willing to fulfill it. God is able and willing to intervene on your behalf. Let me give you one example from Mark 9. Mark 9, I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but the context is a man with a son who has a spirit, um, which means a demon. And every so often, uh, the demon will throw him to the ground so that he foams at the mouth, his teeth become rigid, or he grinds his teeth, his body becomes uh, rigid. Sometimes he's, he's thrown into the fire. The man brings the boy before the disciples. They're not able to cast out the demon. Uh, and then the man brings the boy before Jesus. And we read in 22, the man talking to Jesus, and it, talking about the demon, has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. That's, that's a question of Jesus' ability, right? He, he's standing before God in the flesh. If you're able to do anything, implied in that is maybe you are, but I'm not sure if you're not. If you're able to do anything, if this problem isn't too big for you, if you're able to handle it, could you intervene? And then notice he says, if you are able. And then he also says, have compassion on us and help us. Implied in that is, I don't know if you're willing to intervene, but I would like you to. Would you please intervene? Would you, would you please have compassion? I don't know if you're a compassionate person, but would you have compassion? See what this man is wondering? If Jesus is able and willing to intervene in his life. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, If you can. <laughs> and I don't know how Jesus said it, but I think he said it something like that inwardly, if not outwardly. If you can, all things are possible. For one who believes. Immediately the father 
other child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. One of the greatest prayers in the Bible. I believe. Help my unbelief. Is this not where every single one of us in this room lives? If you're a Christian, this is your life. Yes, on the one hand, you believe. But on the other hand, you don't believe. None of us has pure, 100% unadulterated faith, right? Where we're given a promise of God and every single time we believe it without hesitation. None of us have arrived at that place. We waver. Sometimes we have greater faith. Sometimes we have lesser faith. But on different occasions... It's always the same. I believe. Help my unbelief. This is where we need help. We need God to help us with our unbelief. Now, our passage in Acts 9 this morning is to help us overcome our unbelief. This passage is designed to help us see that Jesus Christ is able and willing to intervene in our lives. Now, many in the early church at this time, just like many today, are wondering, since Jesus has ascended into heaven bodily, and He's there, reigning at the right hand, but He is there and He is not walking among us on earth, the question is, does He still intervene in the life of His people? Yes, we we know that when He walked among us, everywhere He went, touching people and and healing them, but, but now that He's in heaven... Is he still active on earth, intervening in the lives of his people? And this passage is given to us to answer that question in the affirmative. Yes, absolutely he does. To illustrate Jesus' ability and willingness, Luke chooses two healings. Now, the question I want to ask is why these two healings? Um, we know from other passages that um, Peter... Um, healed many people. Why were these two chosen? Well, because they actually happened. Yes, but I think there's more to it than that. Luke specifically chose to record these two healings by Peter because they parallel miracles that Jesus performed during His ministry. So that God's people would read these miracles and say, wow, those are just like the miracles that Jesus performed when He was on earth. Look at the same kinds of things are still happening even though Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus is still working and intervening in the lives of His people after the time of His ascension. Now He's just working through His, his servants. So Luke wants us to see that Jesus Christ is still very active. He's not an absentee landlord. He is alive and well and intervening. So let's look at the first healing. 32, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Lydda is just a few miles north of Jerusalem. And notice that for eight years, this man has been paralyzed. Uh, we don't know the extent of his paralysis. Uh, perhaps he couldn't even roll over in his bed by himself. Maybe he needed 
friends and nurses to go to his bed and roll him over. Um, he probably needed people to wash him. Probably needed help uh, cleaning his sheets. Paralyzed. Eight years. Bedridden. Think about it. That is a hopeless situation. But Peter comes by. And what does Peter do? He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Isn't that something? Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Chuck Swindoll comments, this was really power. Some of us for years have been saying, arise and make your bed to our teenagers with no results. <laughs> but this man, rise, make your bed. Instantly, he gets up and he makes his bed for the first time in eight years. Now, that parallels a miracle that Jesus performed in Mark 2. Some of you will remember that story. Uh, Jesus is in a house. Uh, four men come carrying their friend on a bed. They each, they each have a corner. They're not able to get into the house because of all the people that were surrounding the house. So they come through the roof of the house. They dig a hole in it. And it says they uh, dug a hole through it because it was made out of dirt. So you can picture the scene. They're digging a hole through the roof and all the dirt comes in. And, and then they lower down the body in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Pick up your bed. Arise, pick up your bed. Same thing that Peter says right here. Disciples would hear this and they would think, wow, that's exactly what Jesus said to another man who was paralyzed on another occasion. And notice, Peter is very clear about who's doing the healing here. Jesus Christ heals you. He didn't want anybody to think that he was doing the healing. Jesus Christ was doing the healing through Peter so the people would know Jesus Christ is still healing people. He's still intervening in the lives of his people. Now, why is God restoring lives? So that we can be a testimony of God's ability and willingness to touch people's lives. Look at verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. They saw him. They realized that God had intervened in his life, that God had changed him. And as a result, they put their faith in Jesus Christ. God wants to intervene in our lives because he cares about us and he cares about other people. And then we can go out and we can tell people how much God has done for us. And God can use that to help people turn to Christ. And then Luke provides a second example of Jesus' ability and willingness to intervene. Verse 36, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Uh, notice very carefully that her good works and her acts did not go unnoticed. Now, let me pause here for a moment and just say, God has good works for us to perform. 
We've said this before, but that's one of the reasons why He has saved us. So that we can testify to His goodness in our lives and so that we can live a life of good works. Not just selfish works, but good works. And we really should ask ourselves, what is God calling us to do? Recently, I was listening to a question and answer time um, at a John Piper pastor's conference and one man raised his hand and he asked a question and he said, my church goes out on Friday nights and they spend four hours evangelizing in the community. And he said, I understand some people have the gift of evangelism, but all Christians are called to evangelize. And am I required uh, to go out and evangelize? And John Piper said, uh, based on God's Word, I don't think I can say that you are commanded or required to go out on a Friday night and spend four hours evangelizing. But Piper said, but neither can I say from God's Word that you are required uh, to spend four hours on a Friday night watching safe TV. He said, we should ask ourselves, well, if God is not calling me to evangelize, what is He calling me to do? Because surely He's calling me to do more with my life than watch safe TV. So the question is, what is He calling me to do? What are the good works that He has for me? What are the acts of charity that He would like me to perform? He has prepared good works for us to do in advance. So what are the good works that He has for us? And let's think through that because He does have something for us to do. This lady, Dorcas, uh, she was a hard worker. She was full of love for her neighbor. Um, So she had these good works. But, the story goes on to say, in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Uh, this is probably a funeral. Notice that she's died. They washed the body. They have it all prepared. And they placed her in an upper room. So her body would be prepared for viewing And then we continue on. Verse 38, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. Reminds me of Jesus after the death of Lazarus. Funeral is taking place. Um, They call for him. Of course, they call to him before the funeral. And then 39, So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was still with them. So they're grieving at the loss of their good friend Dorcas and they're showing how she helped all the widows. And that would be very important because in this society, if you, if you were a widow, you were really in trouble. But Dorcas was taking care of the widows. And then in verse 40, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. What's he praying? He's praying that perhaps God would like to perform a miracle here. Now let me ask you a question. In your prayer time, when you get in your closet, when you get down on your knees, 
or you sit in your chair, whatever your habit is, what kind of faith is exhibited there? And said that what a man is on his knees alone before God, that is what he is like nothing else. When it's just you and God in prayer, what kind of faith do you exhibit? What kind of things are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to heal your hangnail? Or are you asking God to give you converts? Are you asking God to raise the dead? And I really mean that. I'm not trying to be funny with the comment about healing fingernails. We are to pray about anything and everything. But sometimes our prayers are so small. Why are our prayer requests so small? You, you know what should be taking place at our prayer meetings? Huge, gigantic, audacious requests. God, give us Fox Lake! You ever prayed that? Convert Fox Lake! McHenry! Round Lake, converted to such an extent that we see the gospel making a difference. Converted to such an extent that there's fewer homeless sleeping on the streets. Bring about such a change that we watch liquor stores closing down. We want it to be so obvious that the Gospel has penetrated this community that we can tell when we drive up Route 12 because it looks different because of what God is doing. And God forgive me, God forgive us for our puny prayer requests that are a manifestation of our lack of faith. What are you praying for when you're on your knees Peter is praying for a resurrection. A resurrection. We have not because we ask not. You ever received a resurrection? You ever asked for a resurrection? Convert my father. He's been hostile to the gospel for 60 some years. That's praying for a resurrection. Do it, Lord. Ask him every single day. Do it. Raise him from the dead. Pray for God to help the blind to see. Do it, Lord. Open his eyes. No one else can do it. And maybe I should ask this. Have we given up? Oh, God won't do it. Think of how insulting that is. God won't do it. Could it be that we're implying that God doesn't care and God's not willing to intervene in our life? God needs to challenge us about what we're praying about. We have not because we ask not. And often we ask not because we really don't believe that God is able, that God cares. He does care. And turning to the body, 
I, I like that. It, I don't know why, but it, it hit me stronger when I was reading it in the Greek text, maybe because I was looking at the word soma, body. And I guess it hit me because he, he didn't turn to a girl. He, did, he turned to a body. The girl was dead. She, she was gone. I often say that at funerals when I'm doing... This is not that person. They're gone. This, this is just the shell. They are not here. They are in heaven with the Lord if they were a Christian. He's just turning to a body. There's not a person. That, it's a body. Turning to the body... He speaks, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. Now that's interesting because that parallels another miracle that Jesus performed in Mark 5. Um, In Mark 5, um, we have a girl, Jairus' daughter, and she dies. And in verse 39, Jesus says, The child is not dead, but sleeping. And Mark 5:40, they laugh at him. But he put them all outside. Same thing happens. Jesus is in an upper room. He puts them all outside. Peter does the same thing. And taking her by the hand, Peter will do the same thing. He said to her, Talitha kumi which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And many commentators have pointed out that if Peter spoke in Aramaic, um, it's the exact same phrase except for one letter. Jesus said, Talitha kumi. Peter said, Tabitha kumi. And that may explain why the passage began by saying that her name is Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. It seems that they referred to her as Dorcas because that's the name that's used earlier, but she has another name, which is Tabitha, and I think it's introduced that way so that when Peter says, Tabitha, arise, we don't all go, well, who's Tabitha? So that we know this is the same letter, but he intentionally says, Tabitha, arise, to make the parallel with the miracle that Jesus performed. So again, I, say, I believe this is very deliberate so that we can see that the reigning Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father Almighty is still active on earth performing the same miracles except now it's through the hands of His people. He's still at work because He cares about His people. And then he gave her his hand, raised her, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. This is a miracle for the widows more than a miracle for Tabitha. He cares about the widows who who need her help. So he raises this little girl up for their benefits. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. So the word spread like wildfire and many believed in the Lord. Many were coming to saving faith. Um, I believe one of the hardest things for us to grasp is that God really does care about what we're going through. I really do mean that. I think a lot of times we don't pray. And we don't have faith because it really, if we can pinpoint the problem, the problem is not God's ability. We really do believe that. 
but it's God's willingness. We really don't believe that God cares about what we're going through and is willing to intervene in our lives. And I can imagine, even as I'm going through this, you're thinking, that will never happen. And all the rationalizations are taking place. No, He would never bring about a healing here. No, He wouldn't raise the dead. Well, you know, theologically, we have to wonder about miracles and their place today. All these rationales go through our minds. And maybe some of them are good questions. But could it be that we really don't believe God would intervene? Yes, of course. He doesn't always raise the dead. It didn't happen in Jesus' ministry. It didn't happen in the book of Acts. That doesn't always happen. He doesn't always heal those who are paralyzed. But He does always intervene in some way. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Asked God to take it away. And God said, nope, nope, nope. Three times. But, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I will uphold you through this. God cares about what you're going through. And how I wish I could help you understand. I really do pray that you can leave here this morning. God cares about what I'm going through, what I'm struggling with. God cares. And the ultimate proof and the ultimate demonstration that God cares about what you're going through is the incarnation and the cross of Jesus Christ. A man asked me just just this last week, what was the purpose of the incarnation? And I said the purpose of the incarnation was so that God could come down from heaven and could come to earth, could live the perfect life that we were called to live but could never live. And then He could suffer, be mocked, have His beard pulled out and so that He could die a physical death in our place. And for that to happen, He had to take upon Himself flesh and blood. Why would He do that? Because God cares about us. God is saving His people. So if you ever wonder about God's care or concern, look to the incarnation and the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no greater concern that God can show His people than to give His Son as a sacrifice to atone for your sin and mine. God cares. And if God will go to great lengths, and that's from our perspective, but if God will go to great lengths to save us and bring about the biggest salvation, the biggest deliverance, will He not take care of the little things? He will. He will. Let's never get over the fact that Jesus came into our lives. Jesus came onto our turf so that He could identify with us. Ravi Zachariah tells a great story. He said there was a man who felt called to minister in a leper colony. And he ministered uh, among these lepers. And week after week, he would present the Gospels to the the lepers. He, He would have church for them in a place that no one else would dare to go. And Sunday after Sunday, he would say, my fellow Christians, and and he would minister to these lepers. But then one Sunday, he began his introduction a little differently. He didn't say, my fellow Christians. He began by saying, my fellow lepers. And ministering to those people 
He became a leper because of the risk. Isn't that God? God comes into our wretched community so that He can suffer with us. He enters into our world. He enters into our suffering. No other religion has a God like that. Every other religion in the world is distinct from His people. Only in Christianity do we have God who takes upon Himself flesh and blood so that He can experience what we experience so He can bring about our deliverance. We have a God who identifies with His people by becoming one of them. Because we have a God who cares. Let's close the prayer. Father, we thank You for Your great concern. Father, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Help us not to rationalize away all Your great promises. Your great promises are meant to come with force so that we can be greatly encouraged and lifted up and filled with hope. Father, I pray that they will have the impact that they're meant to have because we believe them, because we cling to them, because we trust You, because You are a faithful God. And Father, I want to pray that Satan will not be allowed to come this morning and snatch away Your Word. Father, don't let it happen. Father, if any of us this morning have hard hearts, I pray that You will soften our hearts. And Father, I want to ask You to soften them all the way down. May we not be just a little soft so that we have shallow hearts. And Father, may we not have thorny hearts. Father, may the great promises and message of Your Word not be choked by the deceitfulness of riches or the cares of this world or the desire for other things. But Father, I pray that the soil of our hearts would be deep, it would be rich, so that the Word of God could penetrate and yield a harvest 30, 60, even a hundredfold if You would bring about such a blessing. And I want to ask that You would bring about such a great blessing in our lives. And I ask that You would do this not only for our sake, but for the sake of those who will be listening to our testimony and ultimately for the glory of Your name. Amen.